service. Well, this time I'm going to go ahead and transition. Uh, We're going to transition. I'm going to invite the families who have registered for kids ministry, pre-K through fifth grade. If you haven't used the restroom, they ask that you use the restroom on on your way. It saves them a lot of time. Uh, So please stop by the restroom on your way. If you're a guest with us, if you're a visitor, we want you to know that uh, we register kids. Families are um, required to register, but we save some spots. So if you didn't register, you're here, and you didn't know that was something you're supposed to do, please know we have space. So go talk to the team, and they'd love to help you out. Well, I'm going to invite us now to turn our attention to God's Word. I'm going to invite Daniel to come. He's going to read for us in Dutch. Uh, We're reading in different languages each week. Uh, and it's a reminder to us that the gospel is for all nations. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and turn our attention now to God's word. This is the word of God from Acts 6, verses 8 through 15. I'll read the first half in Dutch, and then I'll finish in English. And Stephanus, vol geloofd en kracht, deed wonderen en grote tekenen onder het volk. En enigen van hen die behoorden tot de zogenoemde synagoge van de Libertijnen, van de Syreneers en van de Alexandrijnen, en van hen die uit Cilicia en Azië afkomstig waren, stonden op en reden twisten met Stephanus. Zij waren echter niet in staat de wijsheid en de geest door wie hij sprak te weerstaan. Toen zetten zijn mannen aan om te zeggen, wij hebben hem lasterlijke woorden tegen Mozes en God horen spreken. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Thank you, Daniel. Good morning, church family. Good to see you guys. Uh, If you're new, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors, uh, the pastor for preaching and the pastor for sarcastic comments at Pete, our music uh, director. So... Uh, Daniel, thanks for reading for us. It is amazing to me just, you know, what kind of started out as a, an idea uh, has been just continuing on week after week to be able to hear the word of God in different languages to remind us, yes, that the, the book of Acts tells the story of the gospel message going out of Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth, far-flung places like Snohomish County, uh, Washington. And uh, we're going through this book of Acts and uh, made a little bit of a of a shuffling this week to change some things up uh, passage-wise. So we're going to do just kind of the latter half of Acts chapter 6. Um, real quickly, before I dive in, I just want to share one thing with you just by way of like a, of a kind of a corporate update that involves me personally. You guys can pray for me. We're getting ready to move in to the building uh, on Sunday, November 1st. So next Sunday, Lord willing, uh, the rain was falling so hard during the 9 a.m. service, it really helped me accentuate the point of being able to move inside. Uh, poor uh, Michelle, when she came up to give her testimony, she was literally having to walk on water before she gave the testimony. So 
the, uh, when we move inside, so I, next week will be our last week outdoors under the canopy. So thankful for God's provision for us to have this, to be able to continue to gather. A huge thank you to everybody who showed up yesterday to help us move stuff around the building. Uh, we cleared out a ton of stuff out of the auditorium, moved things into the offices, cleaned out the sheds. We moved furniture. It was a work party, and, and many hands make light work, and you all did just an amazing job yesterday. There's still some more to do, so please be paying attention for um, kind of updates and announcements about that over the next couple of weeks. And then for me personally, I'm actually going to miss next week. I'm going to be out. Uh, this is one of a couple of commitments I had made to our church network that we're a part of, the network formerly known as Sojourn Network. I'll be visiting with a church in California next weekend as they are interested in joining our network. And I had, had agreed early, early this year to be a part of that church adoption team. So you guys can pray with me that I'll be able to help serve them well to know if they want to join up with our network. And, and when you hear me say the network formerly known as Sojourn, uh, we're going to send out some more stuff via the church email. Uh, I believe it's next week. But if you're not part of that church email, make sure you get registered for that. But we've been a part of the Sojourn network since 2017. And they have been talking for a little bit over a year about changing their name. Want to change the name because the network was launched by Sojourn Church, but over the years, they want there to be an emphasis on some of the distinction. It's not one and the same. The network is different than the church. Also, the idea is this is a church planting network. This network exists to help churches and uh, to plant deep roots and be healthy outposts for the gospel. And the idea of sojourning, like wandering around, yes, it's a true biblical metaphor, but they say, hey, our part in this is to provide a safe place, a safe harbor for pastors and church leaders to come be cared for, to receive some rest and, and healing and help and support for the journey that is ahead. And so that's actually what led to the name change of Harbor Network. So it's no longer Sojourn Network, it's Harbor Network. Same organization, same leadership, mission and values. But if you just hear things going out about being a part of the Harbor Network, I wanted you to at least know, no, we did not join a different network. The network switched names. So with all that said, I want to dive in to Acts chapter 6. Uh, would you join with me in prayer, please? Because this is an interesting section of scripture with some challenging things for us to hear today. So Lord, we come to you here now and I ask for each and every single one of us, you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us through the pages of the scriptures. <clears throat> Lord, I ask and I pray that you would guide my words, you would guard my words, that the things that I teach would be uh, truthful and in line uh, with the scriptures and God for each and every single one of us as we gather here today, whatever worries, whatever frustrations, whatever oppositions we're facing, whatever challenges we're going through, Lord God, I ask and I pray that we would lay them down before you and we would have ears to hear you to receive the truth of your word today. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. Okay, I'm pretty confident in saying that nobody likes to be misunderstood. Have you ever been misunderstood? You ever had a conversation with someone, you're trying to say one thing and they're hearing another? Is that not an incredibly frustrating experience? Uh, even my wife and I recently, a conversation over the weekend, a series of misunderstandings, and it's not just frustration, like, oh, you're not hearing what I'm saying. It can actually lead to, like, real hurt feelings, real relational distance and separation, right? You, ever, you know what I'm talking about. Nobody likes to feel misunderstood. Now, let me ask a slightly 
I don't know, a slightly odd question. How do you think that God feels about being misunderstood? Now, I know God is different from us, and if there's ever a misunderstanding between us and God, the problem lies with us, not the perfect, all-powerful creator of heaven and earth. How do you think that God feels about being misunderstood? Is God ever misunderstood? Constantly, yes. In fact, Jesus, in his earthly life and ministry, Jesus was constantly misunderstood by people. He would say things like, to to those who have ears, let them hear, and then people would just not hear. I was actually thinking about a particular verse from the Sermon on the Mount. In in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus makes this statement. It's super relevant to our passage today. Jesus makes this statement. He says, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come to, what's the word, church family? Fulfill them. Now, there's a lot to be discussed there, but why would Jesus say, don't think I've come to do this one thing, instead think this? Why would Jesus have to say that? Because people were misunderstanding him People were misunderstanding Jesus, the very son of God, the one who gave the Torah, the one who gave the the scriptures to the prophets. They're misunderstanding the very son of God as though he were saying, I came to abolish the whole thing. Instead, he's like, don't think that. That's not what I'm saying. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Jesus is misunderstood all the time. If Jesus is misunderstood... His first disciples were misunderstood. We will be misunderstood. Is there anything we can do to help mitigate unnecessary misunderstanding? So last week, just quick refresher, we met a a man whose name is Stephen. He's Hellenistic. He's Jewish, but he did not grow up in Israel. He grew up outside of Israel in a different part of the world, speaking the Greek language. He moved to Israel, is a devout Jewish man, and he becomes a follower of Jesus. He becomes a follower of Jesus, believes that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And he's full of the Holy Spirit, and he's full of wisdom. He's well-respected by the people, and he's given a leadership role, literally a leadership role of what we just heard our sister uh, Michelle talking about, of, of serving food to people who are in need. I love seeing that picture up there on the screen. If you're uh, at home watching on the live stream, sorry, we're going to hopefully in a few weeks be able to have the technology to make that kind of stuff go out on, online as well. But that picture of serving food, I mean, that's what Stephen was doing. He was the leader in charge of making sure that those who were in need got their food. But also, the text tells us he's used in miraculous ways, and as you're going to find out next week in chapter 7, he's one heck of a preacher as well. So like Jesus, he is misunderstood in a very specific way. So I'm going to dive in to the passage, and I'll I'll explain more about what I mean as we go. Now Stephen, verse 8, full of grace and power was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Friends, remember, a sign. A sign is a thing that points to an even greater thing. All of the healings, all of the miracles, they are themselves signs, and they're always pointing us to Jesus and the ultimate restoration of all things that he is doing. Opposition arose, however, from... Now, this is not just the leadership in general. This is not the Jerusalem leaders. This is a very specific group of people. Members of the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians. And that's said to us, like, both of these groups, like, we should know that there's some sort of difference there. 
and some from Cilicia and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. Let me take a moment here because there's a lot of context packed into these couple of short verses. Some of it is just really interesting historically, but some of it is also really helpful for us to understand the context of this conflict. I'll start by quoting David Peterson. He wrote a really helpful commentary on the book of Acts. David Peterson says, it may seem strange to modern readers to learn that there were synagogues in Jerusalem where the temple was so clearly the focus of attention and theologically at the center of Jewish religion. It's like, why would you need a synagogue? You got the temple. Synagogues out in the other areas, sure, that makes sense. Why would you need a synagogue in Jerusalem where the temple is? Says, there is evidence from archaeology and from rabbinic writings that at least one synagogue building existed in the city of Jerusalem before its destruction in AD 70. Furthermore, synagogues had a different, though related, function in Judaism. There, at the synagogue, there's no sacrificial ritual. That's not where you do the sacrifices. But the primary object was instruction in the law of God. Gathered together for teaching, teaching and instruction, which meant study of scripture together with the oral law, which in the Talmud and Midrash finally was written down. An endeavor was made to educate the whole community in its faith, applying the words of God to every area of life, working out the implications of covenant obedience. So this was done not merely through Sabbath, through Saturday gatherings, but through the use of synagogues more generally as places for elementary education and more advanced studies. I remember reading an article one time. I tried to dig it out this week, but I I ran out of steam. I couldn't find it because we were moving chairs and stuff. But the article talked about how so much of what we do on a Sunday morning is actually really downstream from the synagogue practices of first century Judaism. That what we do looks less like temple worship and what we do looks more like synagogue gathering and instruction with singing and with teaching and instruction. It was an interesting article. Couldn't find it. You'll just have to take my word for it. Now, the point being though, There is this one particular synagogue in the city of Jerusalem, and it's made up of a group known as the Freedmen, the Synagogue of Freedmen. And there's a few things we can know about this group that helps provide context. First of all, we can tell that they are themselves Hellenistic former slaves. Hellenistic meaning it's made up of people who did not, were not born in Israel. It says they're from, uh, where's the, where's the uh, Cyrene, which today would be what you call modern-day Libya, North Africa, and Alexandria, which is in Egypt. So you've got North African countries represented there. And when it says Asia, or even more specifically, the region of Cilicia, that is what we would call today Turkey. Cilicia would be a part of modern-day Turkey. So these are Jewish people who were enslaved at one point outside of the land of Israel through whatever circumstances happened. They were emancipated. They were given their freedom and they moved to Israel to reconnect with their roots. There's a saying, I've worked with far too many Texans in my life. John, can you confirm the saying uh, for people that are in Texas? Like, well, I wasn't born here, but I got here as fast as I could, right? Right? Oh, God. 
grant me strength. So the idea with Texans, though, like, yeah, we're trying to get here to Texas. Really quick. It's kind of like that in Israel. We weren't born here, but the moment we got our freedom, we are, we are making haste to Jerusalem, and they're going to establish a synagogue. Now, it's, it's likely just one synagogue, but some scholars argue that there could have even been a network of synagogues in the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding region made up of these Hellenistic former slaves. And here's what's really interesting. There's There's enough scholarly evidence here to point to the idea that it is possible, even likely, that this was Stephen's home synagogue. He himself was Hellenistic. He himself had a non-Jewish name. He himself moved back to Israel. It is likely, possible, maybe even likely, that this is where he would gather for instruction in the law of God. So these are people who know him and would have... You know the idea of um, familiarity breeds contempt? Like sometimes when you're in a closer relationship with someone, not only is there more opportunity for misunderstanding, but the heat can get ratcheted up even hotter. One other interesting thing to think about, Cilicia, the region known as Cilicia in Turkey, anybody want to know, want to take a guess at what its capital city was? I know it's like a totally random question you weren't expecting on a Sunday morning. Capital city of Cilicia? Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was from Cilicia. It was from Tarsus. It is possible, there's no way to prove this, but it is possible that this was also Saul's home synagogue and that Stephen and Saul were in fact in community together for who knows how long before Stephen is martyred in the next chapter, which says that Saul of Tarsus was standing there watching happen. Here's the point. This is not some ordinary group of followers of Judaism. These are the most devout. These are the most intense. These are the most, uh, dare I use the word, like like uh, uh, rigid of, of, Judea, of Jews because they have moved from other regions of the world where they couldn't openly practice their faith and they're moving into this area and they are living in an area that's full of compromise. The, the Sadducees who were in charge of the temple and all the Sanhedrin and everything, Sadducees didn't even believe in angels. They didn't even believe in the afterlife. They barely believed in the supernatural. So here you have this group of people that have moved back and they're like, we want to take the scripture seriously. We want to follow Adonai with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want to take the law seriously. We want to take the temple seriously. And here comes this guy, Stephen, who is saying some strange things. And it would have been very hard for them to receive them. I have witnessed this even here. It's a, it's a, it's a pale comparison, but some of you will know what I'm talking about. There are immigrant communities who have moved from parts of the world where the Christian faith is overtly persecuted and they move to the United States for religious freedom and they are among some of the most uh, devout, dedicated, yes, at times rigid and inflexible adherence to Christianity particularly seen that in members of the, the Slavic community. Slavic friends of mine have talked to me. They're my age and their parents moved over. Like, why are they so intense? Well, it's because it was illegal to be a Christian. One person I've talked to, their grandma literally spent time in a gulag in Siberia. Literally. 
Yeah, they're going to take things seriously. This group of freedmen are taking things really, really seriously. And Stephen shows up and starts talking what they consider wackadoo nonsense about some guy who said he was going to tear down the temple. And then he died, but he came back to life. Like, this guy's off his rocker, they're thinking about Stephen. Verse 10. They were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. I always love these little lines. Just keep giving credit to God, not the apostles. Keep giving credit to him. So what they do? They secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. So they came, seized him and took him to the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling governing body that has the authority. But they also did shady things like present false witnesses who said, this man never stopped speaking against his holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. They're charging Stephen with being anti-temple, anti-Moses, anti-law. Do you think that was frustrating for Stephen? himself a Hellenistic Jew who moved to Israel to participate in temple worship. He loved the Torah. He was full of the spirit. He's serving the poor. He's, he's serving. He's literally taking care of little old ladies. And then here his own people are misunderstanding him and mishearing him. Verse 15, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So I'm not going to fully go into chapter 7, but I want to at least give you a little bit of an understanding of what he's going to say. And we'll, we'll unpack a little bit more next week. But in chapter 7, he's going to go into a sermon, a long sermon. He's going to say, listen, buddy. Buddies in the plural. It was in Hebrew. but He's going to say, you guys have not only misunderstood me, you've misunderstood the entire storyline of the scriptures. You're misunderstanding everything. He starts by talking about the land that God promised to Abraham. He spends 16, 17 verses talking about the land and God promised to Abraham to to give him a land and to turn his family into a great nation. And and this land is going to be where God and man can can dwell together and and we're going to be a family, God's family. And through that family, God's going to adopt in all sorts of other people from all around the world. And then he goes, and Moses, you you, you got to think about God calling Moses. And Moses is this great leader who came to set us free from slavery in Egypt, and he led us out into the, to the promised land. And then, and then he's going to talk about the law. God gave the law or the instruction or the, the Torah. He gave it to the people through Moses so that we could know how to rightly live for God and to worship God. And, and all of that comes to a culmination in, in the temple under David and Solomon and all the people are in the land with the king and the law and the temple. And then he gets real like finger in the chest with them. And he goes, and then God sent his son, Jesus, and you killed him. He got intense. The heat was ratcheted up. He's like, you are misunderstanding not just me, but the entire storyline of God's purposes in the world. It all comes to a focal point in Jesus and you guys murdered him. And their response is to pick up stones and to throw them at him until he is dead on the ground. The first martyr for the gospel. By the way, Why does it say that Stephen's face was like the face of an angel? I do not believe there are any accidental words in the Bible. It's not just in there because Luke was like, man, he just had such a pretty baby face. No. (laughs) By the way, 
Read the Bible and what it says about angels. I still, to this day, have no idea why we say, like, little baby cherub faces. Like, that is not what angels look like in the Bible. They usually have a lot of eyes. I've never seen a baby with that many eyes. (laughs) Why does it say he had the face of an angel? It's not cuteness. It's power that's being communicated there. Little known tradition It is not explicit in the pages of the Old Testament, but by the time you get to the writing of the New Testament, there is a tradition that people have really latched onto the idea that when God gave the law to Moses, he delivered it through angels. Stephen's going to actually mention it in his sermon in chapter 7, verse 53. He said, you received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. For those of you who were around when we went through the book of Hebrews together, you might remember in Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews said the message, he's talking about the law, was spoken through angels and it was legally binding. This tradition, this understanding comes from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 33, where it says the Lord came from Mount Sinai with 10,000 of his holy ones. And the Septuagint translates that as angelos or angels. The point here is that Luke is not wanting us to think he's got some cute, sweet, angelic, smiling face. The point here is that Luke, under the, author- under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying that Stephen is speaking divine revelation like Moses. Stephen is speaking with authority from God on high. So we would be wise to heed what he has to say. So that's our passage and that's our context. And I wonder if, if, if we could just take a moment. I want to just ask a question, okay? Kind of a strange situation, maybe contextually a little bit different from us, but I think there's some application for us. And so I want to ask a question. What can we learn from this misunderstanding and opposition that Stephen faced? What can we learn? How can we, how can we learn from this situation as followers of Jesus, like Stephen? And I've got three things I want to draw out. The first one is simply this. Like Stephen, we must embrace the challenge, even the difficulty of Scripture. Okay, question for you. Show of hands. Please be honest. This is a church. It's even better. This is a tent. This is a revival service. If you don't answer honestly, the Lord will know, and you'll fall over in your chair, okay? How many of you have ever had like a Bible reading in the morning, your devotional plan, and you set the Bible down, you go, you know, I have no idea what I just read. Anybody? Okay, good. We're being honest. Now we're doing church. We're getting real here, okay? Friends, the Bible is a challenging, at times confusing document, series of documents. I remember I I had gone to the elders, when when was that? 2017. I said, hey, can we preach through the book of Judges? And a couple of them said, I I don't, do you really want to do that? I'm like, yeah, it's going to be messy and challenging. It's going to be good. And then we got to the end of the book of Judges and I had like two or three sermons left. And I remember going back to them like, you guys, can we quit the book of Judges before we finish? I am so sick of this. And it's going to, it only gets worse at the end of the book of Judges if you've ever read it. I'm like, can we just do like nothing but just like first John, God is love, like just over and over again for six weeks to kind of cleanse the palate after the book of Judges. You ever read Revelation? Challenging. You ever read Ezekiel? Speaking of angels covered in eyes and all sorts of like weird trippy things. Like you read Ezekiel, like what am I supposed to get out of this? What is, what is God trying to say to me? See, the 
The scripture comes to us not as some like neat and tidy little devotional, you know, series of, of, you know, verses. The scripture comes to us as a complicated story of a complicated group of people. And you got to understand too, this group of freedmen, they're the most intense, the most devoted, the most devout, the most rigid, the most conservative. And when you have a mindset like that, it is hard for a group of people like this to hear some radical sounding teaching. I want to I give a little bit of grace to this synagogue of freedmen, at least a little bit, to say like, yeah, it would be really hard for them to say, we moved to Jerusalem so that we could be close to the temple and participate in sacrifices. And here's some, you know, whack job out here saying that the temple's going to be destroyed. That would be really hard for them. That takes a lot of careful thought. That takes a lot of wrestling. That takes a lot of nuance. And this particular group of people had a hard time embracing that type of nuance, that type of challenge. Friends, you and I, okay, we're Christians. By, I'm, most everyone here is a Christian. We now know that when Jesus said, tear this temple down and in three days I will rebuild it, what specifically was he talking about? His body. We have the benefit of the rest of the New Testament or as my Old Testament professor called it, the answer key. We have the, old, we have the book of Hebrews that goes on and on and on telling us about, you know, the true temple is in heaven and the earthly things are just a shadow and a copy. We have the apostle Peter telling us that there's now a new temple that is Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, and we're like living stones being built into a temple. And now we don't go to a building to worship. We together, the people of God, are a home for the Holy Spirit and we can commune with God directly because we are a temple. That's great news, right? But... They didn't have all that information back then. And Stephen's trying to explain it and he's trying to articulate it and they are having a hard time grasping it. And friends, it's all there. The blueprints were all there. The plan of the gospel, the plan of Jesus was all there. But sometimes it's hard. You look at a set of blueprints, you might get an an idea in your mind. Actually, going through this building project, I've had an opportunity once or twice to look at a set of blueprints and I get a picture, I get an idea in my mind of what it's supposed to look like. And as construction comes together, or if we did some other things, it might not look like what I had envisioned. How much more so for this group of devout Jews to say like, yeah, I see what, what God has been saying, but man, it's really hard for me to picture. Really, Jesus, this is what he was doing? Now, let me just say this. We still struggle with the challenges and the tensions and the difficult rough edges of the scripture today. We do. We do. Three primary ways that I see it in in our church or in people that I know. Number one, an error that people do with, with the tensions and the difficulties of scripture. First one is this, just flat out ignore them. Flat out ignore them. We don't really engage with the scripture in context. This is the just one verse a day kind of approach where you never really understand what the big picture is, is being said. We turn the Bible into little inspirational quotes or, or quips. Others, it's like, I know there's some scary stuff in the Bible, so la, 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 I'm just not going to pay attention. I'm not going to go deep. It's too scary. It's too tough. We just stay shallow. Friends, we don't want that. We don't want to stay shallow. 
We want to wrestle with these tensions. Error number two that I see is a flattening out or an over-explaining or a rationalize everything in the scripture so that there's no more mystery, there's no more challenges, there's nothing left unanswered. We basically take the Bible, which is not a systematic theology book. I love systematic theology books. They're very helpful to think systematically through theology, but the Bible is not a systematic theology. The Bible is a messy, complicated story given to us through messy, complicated individuals by the perfect Holy Spirit of God. And it tells us a pretty honest, pretty raw, pretty real story. That's one of the reasons why I believe the Bible's true. It's because it's not so neat and tidy. It tells us the real life stories and real life wrestlings. There's things in the Psalms, there's things in the prophets that will like, you know, like curl your toes up inside your shoes. Like, they're saying that? Yeah. But there's a, an enlightenment, rationalistic type of thinking that comes to the Bible and says, well, if we you know, fold this verse over into this and play, you play enough Bible origami, you can just explain away all of the tensions and the rough edges. Error number three is just reject the parts that we don't like. I don't know how this thing fits with this other thing. They can't both be true. They can't both be the word of God. So I'm going to get out my scalpel and my scissors and I'm just going to cut out the part that I don't like. That's happened all throughout the history of the scriptures, all throughout the history of the word of God. How can it be that God rained down judgment upon people for worshiping at the golden calf? And how can it be that John 1 says that God is love? I don't know, so I'm gonna have to reject one of them. That's an error, friends. Both are true. There's tensions. There's challenges. There's things that don't fit our personal way of thinking. And so let me just say it this way. What if God gave us a Bible that is complicated and full of peaks and valleys and tensions and things to invite us to come and wrestle with him like Jacob did? What if God in his infinite wisdom didn't give us a Bible that was like, cool, I got the NFL rule book, I memorized all the rules, I'm good, moving on. What if God gave us a Bible that we have to keep coming back to over and over and over and over again so that we keep coming back to him over and over and over again? What do you guys think? We have to learn how to think deeply about the scripture, to wrestle with the challenges and not settle for neat and tidy little easy answers. I think that Stephen knew this. I think that's why he comes back to the storyline of the Bible again in chapter seven. Number two, we got to really watch out for half-truths, partial truths, partial realities. Part of what's so frustrating in this passage, I imagine for Stephen, but even just for me as a reader, is Stephen is, yes, saying what Jesus said, that the temple will be destroyed. Stephen is, yes, saying that some of the customs that were handed down through Moses are now changed because of Jesus. Friends, we do not sacrifice animals anymore. If we did, it's a good thing we're outside because once we go inside, we don't want to get any goat blood on the new carpet, okay? We do not sacrifice animals anymore. We don't worship that way because there has been a once and for all perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He died, he rose again, payment in full, our sins are forgiven. Okay, this is good news. But that is a change, that is a shift. That is a difference. And so they come along and they twist what Stephen is saying to say that he's anti-Moses. No, 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 that's not, that's not what I'm saying. You're misunderstanding the point of Moses. How many of you know that, you know, the devil loves to work in partial truths? How many of you know that sometimes the most effective 
effective lies are the ones that have a lot of truth in them. It's an old saying. I can't verify if it's scientifically accurate or not, but an old saying I remember hearing growing up in youth group is that rat poison is 99% good food and 1% stuff that'll kill you dead. I don't know if it's true or not. Well, I was thinking, I was trying to think of a different analogy, like, like Nickelback is 99% good music and it's just 1% that'll kill you dead. Actually, I, <laughs> ah, that's the best I could do. I hadn't gotten a lot of sleep this week with all the moving stuff. I was thinking of, um, you guys know that pre-shredded cheese, when you buy pre-shredded cheese from the grocery store, I was thinking this when I made nachos the other day, pre-shredded cheese, they like mix in wood pulp to keep it from clumping back together. I was like, mmm, wood pulp nachos, right? Like just, uh, what was my point? The point is, the most effective lies actually have a lot of truth in them, but you just change a few little things, a few subtle things here and there, and now it's no longer the truth. At the church level, this is one of the reasons why we are so committed to as often as possible just going through books of the Bible, going through books of the Bible, reading line by line, verse by verse through books of the Bible because I'm not perfect. None of the other elders who teach are perfect. None of the guest speakers that I would ever invite in are perfect. What you need is not the ideas of men, but you need the truth of the word of God, the full counsel of the word of God so that we can continue to be confronted with different things, the truth of God's word. Because the last thing on planet earth you need is my ideas. If it was just up to me this week to come up with a sermon out of the blue, because of all the moving parties we did, I would probably do some cheeseball sermon called Jesus is Rearranging the Furniture of Your Heart, and it would be awful, and you wouldn't like it, and it wouldn't do anything, okay? <laughs> I might just do that, actually, just for fun. There's no Seahawks game today. Maybe I got some extra time to write a, a bad sermon this afternoon. But the point is this. We, as a church, corporately, we want to be committed to the totality of the truth of God's word not just partial truths or partial ideas, not just a little Bible verse sprinkled on top of someone's personal idea. But what about for you personally, half-truths? Have you ever confessed sin, but partially? Have you ever confessed sin, but you gave it the kind of spin that gets you off the hook just a little bit? What about for people that you're in conflict with? Have you ever heard something that they said and then took it and twisted it to be worse than what they said? You ever misunderstood somebody kind of on purpose? Misrepresented with it? I mean, this is, this is just what politics is in 2020 in the United States of America. I think such and such. You hate babies. It's like, oh my gosh. But we do this, even in life with people that we're in conflict with, we'll take things that they say and we'll partialize it. We'll misrepresent it. Friends, the devil loves that. He has a field day, he has a heyday of taking something and just letting it be partially true, but shifting it. And so friends, we've got to be people who are committed to the full truth. It was easy for these opponents of Stephen to take what he's saying and misrepresent it. May that not be true about us. Lastly, number three, like Stephen, we've got to keep Jesus at the center of the conversation. They want to talk about Moses. They want to talk about temple. They want to talk about law. All good things. But if you read ahead through chapter 7, the culminating point of Stephen's sermon is that all of those things were ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ. 
that, that, that the promises that God made through Moses. He's like, Jesus is an anti-Moses. He's the fulfillment of Moses. Moses was the leader that led us out of slavery in Egypt. Jesus is the leader who leads us out of slavery to sin and death itself and into the promised land of eternal life with God. Jesus isn't anti-law. He's the one who lived a perfect life fulfilling the law that we have all broken. And like the law says, he's the ultimate sacrifice whose blood was shed that we might have forgiveness. And Jesus isn't anti-temple. Jesus is the temple. He's the cornerstone. We're all being built together into this house for his dwelling. And because of his resurrection and now ascension to heaven, we have the Holy Spirit with us and we have direct access to God wherever we are. We don't have to go to a building or a canopy or a temple. We can go straight to God himself because of Jesus Christ. This is the point of all of it. Listen, there are complicated things in scripture. There are things this side of eternity that you and I will not fully know or understand. I don't fully understand the line that Paul says about women who prophesy in the worship gathering needing to wear a head covering because of the angels. I don't fully understand the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6. I kind of do. I have a theory. I'll tell you later. But like on this side of eternity, we might not know all of those things. But if we just keep coming back to the person and the work of Jesus, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. You want to talk about Nephilim? Cool. Let's talk about Nephilim in light of the death, resurrection, burial, and ascension of Jesus, okay? You want to talk about, you want to talk about all sorts of complicated things, the age of the earth and supernatural warfare and healings and speaking in tongues. Let's talk about all those complicated things with Jesus at the dead center, and friends, for myself, for the rest of our leadership, we have a goal to be obnoxious every single week focused on the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it breaks my heart to say there are some churches, and I don't want to throw stones at them, but you can find churches who you could go for several weeks without ever hearing the core of the gospel. We talk about other topics, talk about other ideas, talk about you know, miracles and gifts of healing, or talk about serving the poor and justice in society, all wonderful things. We must have them constantly attached to Christ died, Christ is risen, Christ is coming again. Are you with me, church family? That's what we're wanting to be about. And if you are someone who is here today who has not yet entrusted your life to Jesus, today is the day. As we talk about complicated things in the Bible, there are complicated things in the scriptures, but the simple nature of the gospel is not one of them. The gospel is so simple that a young child can grasp it. You, a sinner, separated from God. God, in love, sending his son to die, to rise again, to offer forgiveness and everlasting life. It's as simple as that. Today is the day to trust Jesus and give him your life. So let me close with a couple of thoughts. A couple of quick brief thoughts. Couple, a couple four, a couple four thoughts. I wanna invite you to four commitments as, as our church community and as followers of Jesus. The first commitment I wanna invite you to is I want you to commit to being people of God's word. Let's be people of God's word, even the challenging and the difficult and the hard to understand and the messy parts. Can we make that commitment, church family? For you personally in your heart, 
boy, I just read something. I don't fully understand it. Maybe there's somebody in my community who does. Maybe there's a book I could read to help me understand it. Maybe I just need to pray and, and, and meditate on it a little bit more. Maybe I just need to put my phone away and go back and read it a little bit more carefully. Let's be people of the word. Let's be people of the scriptures, men and women who are committed to the full counsel of God's word. Number two, let's be committed to nuanced thinking. You know, there are so many cultural forces right now that are literally waging war against us slowing down and thinking carefully. That is, that is like the environment that we live in is not conducive to that. So let's be people who are committed to nuanced thinking, to carefully observing what we read in the scriptures, what we hear from other people, what we see in the culture. Maybe another way of saying it is let's just be people who are committed to humility, not assuming we know it all. Number three, let's be people who are committed to full truth, not partial truth. And yes, that comes in our own, you know, confession of sin as we confess our sins one to another, like the scripture says, but it also comes when we ha- are, are, are trying to represent somebody else. You know, so I, I remember where I first heard it, but you know, one of the tests of, in a, like a debate class or something is you're doing a good job in debate class if you could get up and actually argue the opponent's side. So apply that to politics. Apply that to differences in, you know, denominational things. Apply that to a whole host of life. Can you accurately represent those who you are maybe in conflict with? And then number four, let's just be committed to keeping Jesus at the center of everything, even when we don't fully understand what's going on. And even now, as we come to the Lord's table to eat of the bread and drink of the cup to celebrate Jesus' broken body and his shed blood. This is one of those ways that we can say, Lord, I don't understand it all. Misunderstanding abounds, confusion abounds, but Jesus, I know that you're the hope of the world. And so we come to you now in faith. I'll invite Pastor Jamin to come up and I'll pray for us as we prepare to receive from the Lord's table. God, would you help us now in a world that's filled with so much misunderstanding, in a world that's filled with so much conflict, would you help us to be people who are committed to these things, to thinking deeply, to understanding the scriptures, and most importantly, Jesus, to keeping you at the center of all of our life, our worship, our practice, everything we do. We love you, Lord. Help us now as we come to the table to eat and to drink in faith, knowing that even though we don't know everything, we know you, And more importantly, you know us and you hold our lives in the palm of your hand. In Jesus' name, amen.